Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. I've uh, got a special guest in today, i got Aiden here. Um, not only is my physio, but he's a physio to a number of athletes that do come in and see us at Mets. Um, a pretty of a gun triathlete going through a bit of a, a slum in training with a bit of overtraining at the moment, but um, great to have you on. Wanted to get you on particularly to talk about a few topics that we do get questions on that having a physio sort of go through them with us is going to be really useful. So the first one that, um, that I want to tick off is we get a lot of questions about foam rolling, trigger points, using massage balls, etc. Do you want to just take us through your thoughts on benefits? Is it is it worth it? Um, what is what is going on with things like trigger points? Are they a thing or is it kind of a bit still up in the air? Um, and just briefly touch on the key the key aspects that athletes and, and coaches need to know about. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. So I guess with foam roller and, and self-massage and those kind of techniques, the most important thing with this is that they're really harmful. They're a safe technique to do and, and the risk of injury, the risk of causing further problems is very, very low. So if athletes or people who are non-athletes um, do that, there's, there's nothing particularly wrong with it. Um, but maybe I'll talk a bit more about where the evidence shows the best results are yep. with, um, with foam roller. So with foam rolling, often they're prescribed to increase flexibility, whether it's a, a hip joint or a knee joint or whether it's muscle flexibility or length. Um, some of the evidence does show that muscle length can be improved or joint flexibility can be improved, but it's normally pretty temporary or pretty, pretty transient. Maybe it lasts for a couple of hours, maybe a bit less. So if you're looking to increase flexibility for that time period, foam rolling is a good thing to do in that situation. So maybe if you're doing, um, maybe to use a triathlete example, if you're doing a, a swimming session, particularly with some hard swimming where you need a lot of shoulder flexibility, that might be a good use of your time to do some foam rolling prior to the swimming session. Maybe on the other hand, if you're doing an easy run, you don't need a lot of flexibility to do an easy run at a, at a moderate pace, it's probably less important to do foam rolling or, or trigger point work before that session. From a long-term flexibility point of view, it probably doesn't make too much difference, but again, if you find benefit from foam rolling or, or self-massage, it's, it's a good technique to do. The other, the other area where um, foam rolling or self-massage can be helpful is with muscular soreness and it tends to be that um, the muscular soreness is reduced with foam rolling, particularly after strength training. So often after strength training you'll get the next day and even the following day DOMS delayed onset muscular soreness, that pain you get after um, unaccustomed activity or eccentric um, training in particular and it looks like foam rolling or massage can reduce the effects of that, that DOM slightly. So that's the um, area where I'd usually use uh, encourage people to use foam rollers a bit more. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so definitely sort of post, post-session where legs are feeling a little bit sore is a good good opportunity, but then pre-session as well, if you're just sort of ne- needing a bit of extra range of motion, if you're hitting a bit of a harder session, like you said, swimming is obviously the good one with a lot of guys complain about sort of tight shoulders and that in the pool, just loosening them up before we get in is, yeah. is obviously going to be a good option. And of the three disciplines with triathlon, swimming is the one that has the most significant flexibility yep. demands. And often flexibility can be a limiter for swimming, particularly in age group triathletes where they haven't grown up as swimmers and they've yep. got shoulders with, with average mobility and thoracic spines with average mobility rather than exceptional mobility. Yep. Um, and you see that in elite swimmers, they've got truly exceptional uh, flexibility through shoulders and mid-back, which is what makes them elite swimmers, but uh, a bit harder in, in triathletes when they spend a lot of time on the bike or running. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you want to just touch on um, the trigger point aspect? We obviously hear a lot about, a lot of athletes hear about trigger points and they, they might say they've got a particular spot that when they when they get a massage ball into it, they get a thumb into it, um, someone giving them a massage gets their elbow or whatever into it, it, it's tight but then they can release it. Do you just give a bit of background on what, what kind of is a trigger point if, that, if, that's a, if that's the best way of putting it and then yeah. 
what do we do about these particularly tight areas or um, these so-called trigger aspects? What are, we, what are we doing to fix those or, or release them? Sure, sure. So trigger points are a bit of a controversial issue as you've touched on and there's been lots of textbooks and lots of publications about um, what, what are trigger points and where are they and are they the same on different people? So they've been described as a, a taut band or a, a muscle knot or a hyper irritable piece of tissue. Um, we don't really know why they um, occur. We don't really know if they're the same between athlete A and athlete B. And the researchers suggested that the ability to find a trigger point between one therapist and another therapist isn't actually that accurate. So what one therapist says is a, a, a trigger point in your upper trapezius, another therapist might find a different area. All we know is that they're tender areas to push on, and that may be because there's some cutaneous nerves or small nerves under the skin. It may be because you're pushing on a, on a tender or there's something in that area that's tender. But we don't know um, exactly what the cause of these, yep. these trigger points is, and, and despite all the advances with the scientific um, research, we haven't been able to identify you know, what a trigger point is, either on imaging or on, on EMG, uh, where they measure the muscle activity or anything like that. So there's been a variety of treatments proposed to, to treat these trigger points, but I guess it's a little bit hard to do the treatments when you're, it's hard to determine or define what a, what a trigger point is. Yes. So we've got dry needling, which mm -hmm. is used commonly. We've got, um, you know, firm sustained pressure, which you can either have with a therapist or with a spiky ball or a foam roller, I guess, yes. or some kind of other massage device. So they're the things that are commonly used. Again, it's generally very, very safe. The risk of side effects, particularly with the spiky ball or, or um, other trigger point devices, is very, very low. I have seen a couple of side effects where someone's had their, a therapist put their elbow on someone's uh, backside for a long time and they've actually compressed the sciatic nerve enough to give them some tingling into their leg for the next couple of days. So you, that's an unusual um, side effect. Other than that, it's normally very, very safe. So if you find significant benefit from it, go for it. Um, dry needling is a slightly riskier activity. Um, there's a few cases of pneumothorax or lung punctures occur occurring when the uh, needle pierces the lung. Again, it's very, very uncommon, and if you've got a therapist who's good with their anatomy, it shouldn't, shouldn't be an issue. Um, so those techniques are used. Um, if you find it helpful for you, that's great, um, and I would, would very rarely discourage it, but just be aware that the, the science around trigger points is a bit... Sort of up, up in the air, air still, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So, based on that, the safest way to go about, particularly if you're on your own, is if you've got like a lacrosse ball or a spiky ball, yeah. holding on the one spot and then a little bit of movement. Would you go down that path, sort of sitting yep. in the same spot and then try and wiggle around it a bit, or yeah. what? Is it almost a case of like you were saying before? Is it a case of you can either pin pin the spot and just hold it for a bit and yep. do a bit of movement? Whatever basically makes you feel a little bit better is going to be the yeah. The outcome. Yep. So you can you can do either. Mm. Um, so a lot of the trigger point um, advice and, and textbooks looked at doing a sustained pressure. So if you find a sore area, hold the pressure on that area for forty five to ninety seconds. See how it feels afterwards. Yep. And then you can add movement if you describe, which becomes more of this myofascial release yep. term, which again is a bit of a controversial term. But you're 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 moving over a variety of tissue rather than fixing in the one spot. And then foam roll is a bit more, or massage is a bit more movement again, where you're moving over. A lot more tissue but with a, a more sustained pressure I guess. So um, any of those are good options whether you want to hold an area for a prolonged period of time or you want to move the, the lacrosse ball or the spiky ball over a, a larger over, over the length of a muscle. Yep. Yeah.
Yeah, either either sort of work. Yeah, good one. Just a just a quick one on on sort of moving through. You sort of mentioned this almost those three phases of massage is quite general, and then you're getting yeah. a bit more specific as you yeah. get to using a cross ball. Would you probably recommend going for like if you're going to use some of these, use a foam roller first to to generally I guess if you like to use the term warm everything up, yeah. then get into the the more specific targeted areas, or is it okay to just jump straight in and, and hit one of those trigger trigger sort of pressure spots on, um, say your glutes for example, yeah. just hit that first and then go the other way and then start moving into more of the general stuff. Which way do you reckon probably? Yeah, sure I don't have too much of a preference. Mm. It probably depends on the individual circumstances. So if someone finds they've got one tight area, they might be just, they might have found a technique that works for that. And I'd yeah. be happy for them to, to stay with that. If they find they need a bit longer and they need to approach the area gently. Because often what these, these firm pressures do is they increase your ability to tolerate pain, you're kind of replacing one pain with another pain for a while. So having a foam roller for a while might, you know, reduce the, the threat or reduce the perception of pain when you're pushing on that area. So doing a bit of foam roller might make it feel a bit better and then you can go a bit more aggressive with a, a lacrosse ball or a spiky ball. So you may find that you get a better result with gradually increasing the pressure through that area, yep. going from a more general foam roller massage into a bit more specific and a bit more of a firm use of a, a trigger point ball or yeah. a lacrosse ball. Yeah, rather than going sort of zero to 100 and just bang straight into the area. But I guess yeah. if you can tolerate it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Like again, the downside's pretty good, but if, mm. you, if you get some significant symptom relief from having a sustained pressure straight out of the gate, that, that would be fine. You could yeah. do that as well. Yeah, cool. Um, second thing I did want to have a chat about today, because again, another sort of common common theme that comes up with athletes either coming in um, or not coming in, if you like, for, for testing is often around the side of injury and particularly to do with tendon-based injury. See a lot of runners, a lot of triathletes in particular having issues with tendinopathies or particularly Achilles-based based stuff. Do you want to just talk through um, the common, I guess, common tendon-based tendon injuries that you, you see and you treat? Yeah. Um, what, the, what the general, I guess, progression of getting athletes back to fully recovered from those tendon-based injuries and then maybe using the Achilles as an example of, I guess, that whole process of athlete presents you with a Achilles-based tendon issue, how do you then take them from when they first come in the door to getting back running, training, um, almost 100%? Great. Sure, so as you mentioned, my area of interest with, with work is, is sports medicine, but tendon injuries in particular, so I see quite a lot of tendon injuries. Um, we see a variety at the clinic, which is good. Um, we see a lot of Achilles, which is generally in runners, but it can be in, in non-runners. We see some patella tendon or knee tendon um, tendon problems, which are generally in people who are doing jumping sports, so basketball or volleyball. Yep. We see hamstring tendon a bit, which is a bit of a mixed demographic. You often see it in people who are relatively sedentary but sit mm -hmm. a lot, or you can see it in runners as well. We see a lot of gluteal or outside of hip tendon, which is more in the, the mid-50s population and older. We see a few shoulder tendon problems, elbow tendon problems like tennis elbow, yep. and also a bit of um, plantar fascia, which used to be treated a bit differently to a tendon problem, but now it's kind of coming under that umbrella of a... Yeah, okay of a tendon condition. So um, with an Achilles injury, it's probably important to talk about the risk factors or things that make you more likely to have a tendon injury. So there's a few that you can't change and a few that you can change. So one of the ones you can't change is that there is a genetic susceptibility to some certain genes that make you more likely to have an Achilles tendon problem. So you can't change that. Um, the other things that make you more likely to have Achilles pain is your blood profile, which is quite interesting. So if you've got um, poor blood glucose control or you've got insulin resistance, so that's the kind of pre-diabetes, we think you're more prone to getting tendon problems there because the yeah, metabolism right. of the tendons is, it has a glucose metabolism. So if you've got general health 
considerations like that's worth addressing. The other thing is that elevated cholesterol is a risk factor for developing tendon problems. However, reducing your cholesterol with statin medication or a, or a cholesterol-lowering medication further increases the risk. So there's some background considerations. Yeah. So it's going to be less likely to be an issue in your 20 or 30 or 40 year old triathlete. But certainly we're saying someone who's a bit older, who's still very active but has these general health considerations, mm -hmm. we need to address those as well, or at least discuss those as well. So maybe just, just to cut in, maybe some of those athletes who are coming into things like triathlon in yeah. their later 30s, 40s, haven't done much since they were probably, yeah, early 20s, getting back into sport after 10, 15 years. Yeah. Probably worth checking some of these um, aspects prior to really fully getting yeah. involved again. Yeah, it's probably worth getting a yearly checkup mm. from your GP if you're above 40. And if you've got some markers of um, impaired metabolic control, so the, the blood test that I often look for is called a HbA1c, which is a measure of your... Um, average blood sugar levels effectively over the last three months is a good tester for what your metabolic health's like um, and that's kind of normally easily available from your doctor if you've got a, um, a good reason for it. So you can do that. Um, then you, your tendons act like a spring. To use the Achilles in his example, it's good at absorbing energy when you touch the ground and then releasing energy when you push off the ground again. So running is the main sport where you use your Achilles, there's really a trivial amount of load through your Achilles tendon in cycling and in swimming. Um, where you can see problems with the Achilles is if the, the total volume of running increases dramatically. So if you get someone who's running 20 kilometers a week and you spend three years gradually increasing their load, then three years later they're running 80 kilometers a week. Often they can handle that load because the tendon's able to adapt, it gets stiffer and more able to work like a spring. You get that same runner and take them from 20 kilometers a week and over two months you go 20, up to 80, so by adding 10 kilometers or so a week, often that runner will break down because their tendon's yep. less able to adapt over that short period of time. So the tendon's really resilient, it's able to, to adapt to what you're doing to it, but it also means it de-adapts too, so a long period of rest makes it less able to cope with the demands of running. So what we like to see is gradual change in the running volume, it gradually increases over a period of time. And then also with, with fast running, so um, sessions you know running at, at half marathon pace or quicker we like to see that as only a set percentage of your your running week and that's often a high load through the achilles as well so very fast running puts a higher load through the achilles than, than moderate pace running so that's also a consideration in designing a training program and, and talking about risks for for achilles issues um footwear is probably a consideration depending on your running mechanics often the shoes with the lower drops they talk about a shoe drop so from your heel down to your forefoot so most shoes will have an eight millimeter drop some will have a bit less so four millimeters particularly racing flats and then some of the shoes that got quite popular a few years ago like the the um the newtons or some of the i think it's the ultra shoes have a zero millimeter drop or even a negative drop so the newtons actually force you to land on your forefoot because you can't really land on your heel at all so all those things can put more load through the achilles which if you adapt to it over a period of several months, it's actually yep. normally okay. Yep. If you try and do it over a week often, it, it causes problems. Mm -hmm. So that, that, they're the kind of risk factors that we look at um, for Achilles. In terms of treatment, it's individual, kind of depends on the presentation. And in, um, one of the big considerations is which part of the season you're at. So if you get a, a triathlete and we're in March, so the back half of the Australian season, they might have their A race in April or May, whether it's an Olympic distance race or longer or shorter. In that situation, you're very rarely going to say you should rest completely for four weeks and then try and race. It wouldn't be great advice. Yep. They go into the to the their A race of the season unfit. So in that situation, you might be happy to push through a bit more symptoms as long as they're happy to rest at the end of the season or do a bit less at the at the end of the season. 
Whereas if you get the same athlete, they had their A race in mid-April and then they've got another couple of months ahead of them where they've got nothing structured, mm -hmm. that would be a really good time to really push the rehab a bit harder. So your advice will change depending on what time of the season they're in. Yep. Um, so do we pull them back from running? Again, it depends on the time of the season. What we look for is the response to, to running or response to load. So if you go for a run and there's mild pain, it's okay. The risk of catastrophic things happening to your Achilles during a run is very, very low if you've got some pain. So most people who rupture actually never have pain before. It's this funny paradox. Yeah. You think people who have pain, they get worse More and worse and yeah. worse and rupture. But the, the opposite is true, actually. Most people who rupture have got nothing, nothing, nothing and Dang. pop. Your Achilles goes, but um, it, it's not the case. So um, it's, it's safe to push through some pain. We often use a kind of a ceiling of three to four out of ten pain during a run, um, as, as the cap would tolerate. But it needs to be no worse the next day in an ideal world. So if you do a an easy run, a forty minute run on a, on a Tuesday and Wednesday, it's a lot worse in the morning, or a lot you're a lot sore at a hop, which is a good test for the Achilles. It's a sign you've overloaded the, the tendon based on what its capacity is on that, on that previous day. Whereas if you do a, an eight kilometer run the next day, it's the same or even a bit better. Great, green light to do a bit more. Yep. And then we'd use that response to kind of dictate um, how much training we're doing. We might replace some running with cross training, something like bike or cross train or a pull, if it's during the season or even if it's in the off season. And we might prioritize the sessions to say, right, what's the most important session? That's long run. Let's get yep. long run done. And it's your Thursday track session, despite track being a bit more low because it's fast, we still need to get some fast work done mm -hmm. to be able to prepare the demands of, of race season. So, but maybe the two easy runs that you do during the week can be replaced by cross trainer, bike, step up. Something else doesn't yep. put a lot of load through the Achilles. Mm -hmm. So once we've got a stable base and, and the, the symptoms are well managed, then we often include a rehabilitation program. Um, it's hard to do this in season when you've already got three or four or five runs or more per week, but often once we can drop the running down a little, little bit, we'll include a rehabilitation program, which often includes a heavy strength program. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely look at gastrocnemia, so your big calf muscle. We definitely look at soleus, which is the deeper calf muscle, which is a bit tricky and it's often missed, I think, in rehab programs, but soleus needs to be strengthened with your knee in a, a bent yeah. position, so some kind of heavy calf strength, but with your knee bent. And then, particularly for an Achilles injury is long-standing, we'll look at further up the leg, up the kinetic chain. Often people develop some weaknesses in their quadricep muscles or their gluteal muscles if they've been um, having an Achilles problem for a long time. They get some, some weakness upstream, so you need to address that as well. Yep. And then, um, after that, there's often a few more steps, like including some skipping or hopping drills to get the tendon more able to act like a spring, That's absorb spring, and release yeah. energy. Mm. And then a gradual return to running, and it depends on how long they've been off their feet for, about how long we, we build up to the volume again, and, and how severe their symptoms have been. But again, we use that um, next day response, that 24-hour response as a good benchmark. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a, a general outline of how yep. we approach an Achilles problem. The important points to kind of mention are that it's very individual. There's no recipe treatment. There's certainly some recipe treatments out there that were used on the early stages in the late 90s with, with Achilles problems. And for some people, they'll actually do quite well if it's um, if it's someone who is is generally mid forties or older, they're a bit weaker than they were fifteen years ago, and they're running mm. two or three times a week. A generic program often actually does pretty well, um, but if there's if you're not getting results with that, or if if you've got specific requirements about your with your sport, you probably should have an individualised program. And um, we always try and empower people. Know what loads are high for your tendon. Know what loads are low for your tendon. As an example, when we get back to running, 
very, very slow running actually puts more load through your Achilles. Mm. So often we'll get you doing moderate pace running, not, not sprinting, but, but not going deliberately very, very slow. Because when you run very, very slow, you have a big contribution through your Achilles. It can actually be more load than moderate pace running. Yeah, so we make an individualised program, get people to understand what loads are high and yeah. low for their Achilles. What are the what are the green light signs to push ahead and do more training? What are the red light signs to hold back and do a bit less training? And um, most of them can be managed very very successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, and that's an interesting point. I think going, not just going back in and starting. All right, you're only going to do really slow running because, as as you said, if you if you're running really slow, you're potentially spending more contact time on the ground probably loading up the Achilles more than what you would be if you're running a bit more moderate pace. So interesting that uh, probably first thought, and even in my mind before you sort of mentioned it was, all right, yeah, just ease back into running is the first thought that everyone sort of goes through, but actually being able to pick it up a bit, not going flat out straight away, but being able to pick it up a bit. So you're getting some load, but you're not putting a massive amount, and then you can start getting back into the, the longer slow stuff if you need to, or some of the high intensity yep. stuff later. So to give a kind of example, if someone does their normal long run at a five minute kilometer pace, I'd, mm. I'd strongly discourage them doing six minute kilometers when they return from an Achilles yep. injury. And you might get them running at five minute pace. Often they might be aerobically not able to handle that for too long, in which case you do a walk run program. You yep. might get them running for two or three minutes with a one minute walk in between. Often though, they're quite aerobically fit because they've been able to maintain bike yep. and pull while they've yep. been running a bit less, or even doing more bike and pull while they've been running a bit less. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and interesting as well, you've got to consider all the potential uh, other downsides, like you said, maybe quadricep uh, or as a result or, or through your glutes as a result of either compensating on one side while you're managing the injury, um, or if you're not, not being able to run at all potentially yep. in some of those cases. Um, just the impact of then running again compared to just being on the bike or in the pool where there's sort of that minimal forceful impact through the knees and that. Do you see any sort of follow-on injuries as a result of coming back too quickly into, into yeah. high running loads? That's a really good point and often you see that you see that in, in elite runners because often when they've got a, an injury whether it's an Achilles or a bone injury like a stress fracture, they'll rest from running because they have to but they'll do three out of the cross running a day yeah. so they're aerobically, their, their cardiovascular yeah. fitness is... Yeah. Fantastic, and you see the same thing with triathletes. They might go from six or eight hours a week on the bike to ten or twelve because they're not running as much. So mm. they come back and they're aerobically bulletproof, but from a musculoskeletal point of view, they're a bit vulnerable. So it's a good point with the reloading. You're also looking at bony reloading. You don't want them to develop a stress fracture in their shin or in their foot, which is quite common, yeah. um, or even in their thigh, which is a bit less common but still happens, particularly in, in distance runners. And yeah, allow the rest of the joints to reload as well, as well as the tendon that was originally affected, so the Achilles tendon in this example, so um, it depends on the time off their feet as to how yeah. quickly you reload them, but um, um, that's an important consideration. Mm. Yeah. Any sort of, last, sort of last point I want to touch on is um, almost, if you like, what's better to just have a bit of Achilles pain and, and sort of a, a partial, partial damage to the tendon yeah. or to do the full rupture and, and have it go? In terms of coming back and then, I guess, susceptibility to re-injury yeah, yeah which one's better because it's some when they talk about i don't know like broken bones and that it's always yeah. better to snap the thing completely yeah. than fracture it yeah sure um sure. what do you see is is it sort of similar your higher risk of re-injury um yeah. after having any sort of achilles injury or is yeah. it a case of the, the athletes who do completely snap it yeah once it reforms rejoins it's sure it's sure good to go again um i'll talk about rupture a little bit mm -hmm. so um most people who rupture it's probably at least 90%, they have some significant tendinopathy or, or tendon change in the tendon despite them normally not having any pain. And again, there's a funny paradox you'd expect if you have 
an unhealthy looking tendon on, on imaging that would be painful, but often it's not the case. They don't look healthy on the scan, but the athlete still functions very, very well. So you're, un, you're often having a rupture to a, a tendon that's unhealthy rather than a healthy tendon. With a rupture, there's, there's two schools of thought and, and neither one has been proven to be better than the other. Often there's, a, there's been a push for conservative treatment with an Achilles injuries now, so that would put you in a, in a plaster cast for two weeks um, with your Achilles in a short position and then into a, a boot after that for four to six weeks and then a gradual wean out of the boot and eventually return to sport. The other option is a surgical repair. They'll take you into theatre, general anaesthetic, and do an incision on the back of your calf and, and they repair the Achilles with, with sutures. Neither has been better to be. Neither has been proven to be better in the long term. So we're, we're by long term, I mean one or two or three years after the injury. If you have a surgical repair, the re-tearing rate is very, very low, substantially less yeah, than four percent. Right. So once you get through that first couple of months, you're out of the boot. You normally it's 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 reasonably smooth sailing. It can be hard to get your full strength back, but it's normally a, a pretty smooth process with the conservative treatment. Again, often it's a smooth process. The chance of re-injury when you went out of the boot is a bit higher it's not yep. substantial but it, it's certainly a bit higher and that will be very frustrating because you get three or four months down the track and you can have a re-tear and you can be back at, at square one yep. so to speak and often they they progress to a surgical um, repair at that stage so that's why you see in, in most elite athletes they have a surgical repair not because the long-term results are better just because they can't afford to have an injury and then three months later be back to square one yeah. yeah so on, on balance, I think it's probably better to have a, a tendinopathy. Most of them do pretty well. There's very few chronic, um, grumbly tendinopathies that um, that force you to have dramatic changes to yeah. your uh, running program for a long time. Most of them do pretty well. Um, very few progress to surgery. Um, so yeah, most most of them again. I'm probably I'll ask because I, I might see some of the more bad ones. The ones yeah. that get better just get better, and they don't yeah. go and see a physio. But um, most of them do pretty well, the, the, the normal Achilles tendinopathies. Um, I, I'd prefer to have that than a rupture. Yep. Yeah. And again, with a rupture, you're kind of off the bike for a while. You're off the pool, out of the pool yep. for a long time as well. So um, having a, a, a boring old tendinopathy would be better yep. than a rupture, I think. Yeah. 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 Just, just very quickly, for those, who, for those who are watching and listening who don't fully understand sort of the difference maybe between tendinopathy and yeah. a, a rupture, last, last little point and then we'll wrap up. What actually... What actually cause a tendinopathy though what what is it is it little sort of partial yeah. tears or yeah. is it just a bit of overstress and it's sort of sure. inflamed sure so the the terminology used to be tendonitis that mm -hmm. was the word that was used until um the early 2000s you had achilles tendonitis or um, patella tendonitis and the itis denotes uh an inflammatory component so you've got an inflamed tendon yep. and some of the research around that time where they took some samples of the tendon and looked to see if there was inflammatory cells in the tendon, showed that, that there wasn't, so that they went away from that term of tendonitis and went to tendinosis. So osis means degenerative change, and then they changed it again to opathy. So a tendinopathy is, is a problem with the tendon or a kind of partially reversible degenerative change, which sounds a bit like a, a word salad. That's sometimes where the, yeah. the academic research <laughs> takes you. So um, it's it's an inability of the tendon to cope with what you're asking it to do and you can have early stage tendinopathy where the tendon's literally a bit swollen there's a bit more fluid in it or you can have a later stage tendinopathy where the normal orientation of the tendon where you've got fibers of collagen like layers of a rope that are in a line are disorganized and you have other substance in the tendon things like ground substance um, new blood vessels like nerves and little veins 
um, undivided cells as well. So you can have this structural change to the tendon. And that may be reversible in the long term, but the important thing to consider, if you've got some of your tendon that's unhealthy, you might have 70% of your tendon that's still pristine, beautiful, healthy, normal tendon tissue, and that can be strengthened and rehabilitated quite easily. And often rehabilitating that healthy, healthy tendon is what gets you back to your normal activity levels. Yeah, yeah cool. Plenty of, uh, plenty of interesting content to, to sort of take away, and uh, I mean, we could chat about different things about tendons and, and re-injury and stuff all day. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we might have to get you back on um, with some more episodes in the future just talking about different types of injuries as well. Um, great resource we've got uh, in terms of Aiden as well. So if you've got any questions that you want specifically asked in terms of injury and that, like, like I said, we might have to set up another time to, to sit down and go through them and, and sort of help a, help a few guys out with, with a little bit of advice around what what is actually going on with some of these some of these injuries. So hopefully you've enjoyed uh, this episode of the podcast and we'll see you on the next one.